Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, I just want to point out that it's taken a global emergency to cause me to change my music back to the old music. Many of you will be relieved and consider it a fair trade global pandemic for um, getting rid of the new music and the newer music and reverting back to the classic Coke of the old music. So um, apologies for the discombobulation. We will we'll work out our music problems as the, the end times proceed. But now I'm back here with my friend and partner in um, social distancing, Paul Bloom. <laughs> Paul, thank you for coming back. And it's good to be back. I, I like the new music. <laughs> I, I know you're getting a lot of pushback on Twitter, but I enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. The the amount of hate is unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I, I like it too, but even I recognize that there was a total mismatch between its upbeat vibe and some of the topics I was beginning to cover. And I just, coronavirus yeah. aside, the idea of dropping that music against nuclear war or child pornography or whatever else I had come in, it just seemed wrong. So. You know, I've known you for a while, and I've always wondered what you would do to cross the line, yes, and it turns yes. out to be the music. Yes, the most controversial misstep I've ever taken. <laughs> That's right. So, are you social distancing? Yeah, I am pretty good at it at this point, I must say. I, it did not take long for me to um, snap into gear here, and this has been such a strange experience because, I mean, everyone must be experiencing this. At whatever point they began to take this seriously or began to notice the culture taking this seriously. The experience for all of us is of time compressing in this amazing way where, you know, three days, much less a week, seems like an eternity. I mean, you and I recorded our last podcast, I think we released it about 17 days ago on, on February 28th, and that now seems like a different period in human history. I think we hardly mentioned COVID. It, 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 things have changed so quickly. Well, I think we had recorded that podcast a few days earlier, like the 24th. Yeah. For my podcast with Nicholas Christakis, I went back and reconstructed my own psychological timeline because I was just interested to see when the dominoes began to fall for me and how out of sync I was with the culture and with many of my friends. It was on the 27th that I just you know, pulled the ripcord. So, you know, it was right after we recorded that podcast. So I, I must have been thinking about it then. But I mean, there's so many sources of stress here, and, and we, we can talk about them. But one thing that has been personally stressful is just to be early on this. You know, I can sort of almost set my watch by it. I mean, I've been essentially like a week ahead of where society seems to be at. And there's something really toxic about trying to convince the people in your life to take something that you're taking very seriously, more seriously. So do you feel that now people are on the same page as you? I mean, my sense is they're, they're about a week ago, people were in all different directions. Now, for the most part, I feel everybody is, is taking this extremely seriously, very worried about the Italian model, very worried about where we'll be two weeks from now. Do you, do you feel that yourself? Well, with some very prominent and galling exceptions, there are people you know, who privately are not taking it seriously enough, and I'm, I'm having to essentially attempt an exorcism on their brains, you know, you know just one-to-one -one you know, with a phone call. And then there are people you know, who have a public posture who are not taking it seriously, who I'm kind of back-channeling and receiving a lot of pushback. I mean, in some cases, total pushback. And it's very frustrating because you know, some of these people have enormous public platforms and 
it's just socially irresponsible not to have your facts straight at this point. And yeah, so some of this has been happening behind the scenes, and it's it actually connects with a conversation you you and I were having last time around loyalty and the obligation or pseudo obligation to treat friends differently. I noticed that if there's someone who's wrong in public about this, who I don't have a prior relationship with, certainly not not a friendship, I'm much more disposed to just kind of message at them, however harshly, in public. Whereas if they're already a friend, I feel like, okay, I got to go behind the scenes and try to get them to change their minds, you know, in private and then message something differently in public. And, you know, now that I'm confronting this in a pretty big way, I don't actually know what the right answer is. And do you have intuitions about that? It's a hard case. I mean, I think there's a middle ground. I mean, I've argued with friends of mine on Twitter. I've argued with you on Twitter about about issues where you could kind of intellectually disagree. And if it's all in sort of, you know, a positive atmosphere and with respect, it's fine. But this is a funny case because you want to be telling your friend here that he or she is doing something seriously wrong and, and you know, risking people's lives, risking people's health. And I can understand the reluctance to do that in public. It'd be better if you could persuade them in private. Yeah, yeah. I've certainly made a solid attempt and uh, come up short there for reasons that are just completely disconcerting. I mean, I actually have no theory of mind for why certain people don't get that this is a big deal. I mean, there are obviously some memes that are doing real damage to people's thinking here. And maybe we should just talk about why it's hard to grasp this problem and, you know, why it was hard to grasp it early and to change one's behavior. I mean, so one meme that I think has really been damaging is any analogy drawn to the flu. You have people saying, well, the flu kills 50,000 people a year in the United States. If we were paying attention to the flu on this kind of granular level, we'd be terrified too. We'd be in a perpetual state of terror and no one would leave their houses and we, we people would be insisting that schools should be closed but we don't do that and we're right not to do that so this whole coronavirus thing is insane and there are people who are stuck on that bad analogy who just don't understand i mean yes flu would be appropriately terrifying if every one of us were going to get it in a single month in the united states and we were going to crash our healthcare system right i mean flu is yeah, also a big right. deal but this is also by you know any rational estimation at this point, considerably worse to get than the flu. Now, whether it's six times worse or 10 times worse or 20 times worse, we don't know. But you know anyone who thinks that if you're under 70 or even under 50 and have no comorbidities, you're just going to sail through this thing without a problem, that is not what we're hearing from the front lines. And we're not even at the point now where we're getting decent data on the lasting impairments among the people who are, quote, recovered from this thing. I mean, there's definitely some reports of lasting lung damage and heart damage. And so there's just no question the analogy to flu is a bad one. And yet people keep making it. And And imagine that it's true that for, uh, imagine it turns out to be true that for young people, say, under 50, it, it will not cause much damage. It'll be experienced like a like a bad case of the flu, and then you get better. Still, it seems to be bizarrely cruel to be indifferent to the suffering of older people. I mean, you, you might you could say to somebody simply, "Don't you have anybody 
over the age of 60 who you love, a parent, a grandparent, yeah. anybody who's, who's compromised in some way, who's not as healthy as you. Or you can simply say, don't even, you don't even have to imagine whether you have somebody in your life. Can you appreciate that these people's lives matter? And by you getting sick, even if you yourself are willing to take on the risk, the harm you could do to other people is, should be a factor in dictating your, your life choices. Yeah. And I think Nicholas Christakis made this point where if only out of you know, altruistic, positively social motives, if you just understood that you at your age and in your cohort were just destined to be a carrier of this thing, you know, you still have to worry about, you know, every old person you are going to come in contact with. When do you decide to behave normally around your parents or your grandparents? If you're an asymptomatic carrier, you're just rolling the dice with them, you know, with, yeah. with their lives. So it's something to take seriously, even if you were guaranteed not to suffer much from this. So you, you've been talking to experts. And actually, I got to say, the, the episodes you had with uh, Amesh Adalja and my friend uh, Nicholas Christakis have been mm. excellent. I am not an expert on this. I know nothing about, except for the fact I've been reading Twitter nonstop for the last, you know, two weeks. But, but I am interested in the psychology of these things. And there's something about this situation which it has certain features that make it difficult for us to appreciate. So the causality is funny. We understand mm -hmm. that if you are sick and you are you are, are showing signs of disease and you make contact with me, there's risk, and I should you know avoid you from that. But basically, the way this disease works is you can be perfectly healthy and asymptomatic. And contact with you, though it doesn't seem bad, is still bad. This disease it shows signs of exponential growth. And um, we can look to other countries to see it happening. And that's a difficult concept for us to grasp. We look around, we see everyone's fine. We're all kind of going to restaurants and bars and everything's fine. This disease has no enemy. It's not as if we're dealing with a malevolent agent. We're dealing with this sort of, you know, unfeeling, unconscious virus. And for all of these reasons, we're not really suited to think well about it. You know, we look yeah. around, we see everyone's walking around, people are fine, so we assume we're fine. And it's only when we reflect and we look at other countries and we use our, you know, rational capacities, we understand the terrible risks involved. Yeah, but conversely, I mean, this should be the easiest emergency to orient toward. First of all, it's the easiest one to have prepared for in advance because it was guaranteed to happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's literally like, you know, a tornado if you live in Tornado Alley or, a, you know, an earthquake if you live in California. I mean, this is a point that Bill Gates made, like the threat of a global pandemic that was, you know, highly contagious and, you know, lethal enough to be of real concern, that was guaranteed to happen, right? And this is certainly not as bad as it could be. Whatever the outcome here, literally, even if millions of people die, this is still a dress rehearsal for something that is civilization canceling, which That's is certainly right. possible. guy, Adalja, when he spoke with you, kept yeah. saying, you know, this is fine. This is not such a big deal. Right. And, yeah. and he said it was clear he was comparing it to some sort of form of bird flu that would kill 60% of people who got it and would ultimately, you know, be, be a species extinct, extinguishing event. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it could be a lot worse right. look at it from that perspective. But when we knew this was going to happen, I mean, this was not, this is not even as hypothetical or as debatable as climate change. There's no alternate argument based on evolutionary principles that xenoviruses aren't going to 
jump into our species and mutate and in a matter of time get worse, right? So we just knew this was going to happen and yet we didn't prepare. And even when it's happening and we know we are failing to contain the spread and we're seeing this wave crash on the shores of other countries, I mean, even looking at what's happening in Italy, you still have people here denying the reality of this thing. And I mean, like, literally, did you see the photos from kind of the last night at Disney World last night? Yes. I mean, yes, I've seen, I've seen Disney World. I've seen pictures of Florida beaches. I've seen, you know, God. wild parades and parties. These are images out of a pandemic movie, right? I mean, this is like minute 33 in the pandemic movie. You have just a crowd of doomed imbeciles just fighting their way into the magic kingdom, right? It's just, I mean, it's... So, so what do you think is going on with the doomed imbeciles? Do you think it's skepticism? And I should say, I mean, imbeciles, you know... the government has to say? As I pointed out, I mean, I know some of these imbeciles. Some of them are quite smart. <laughs> okay, so the smart imbeciles, what's up with them? Is it that they're, they're just natural contrarians? Is it that they distrust what the government has to say? Is it, is it a political thing? I don't act. I mean, there there are certain cases where I, I really do not have a theory of mind. I just think I'm stumped. But in others, you know, as this thing was gathering energy for me in my life, and I noticed that I was out of step with the culture and with the people around me, I noticed that there was a marked difference between people who were very online and and people who are just not online yeah. at all. I mean, like the people in my life who just have never had a Twitter account. They have a very different information diet and a cadence of getting information on, on really anything. And, you know, so some of them were just totally oblivious. I mean, literally, I had, I had a, you know, very close friend, very smart guy, well-educated. Basically, he thinks he stays in touch with reality and, you know, looks at the newspaper every day. But he was aghast when I told him that he would be canceling his travel plans at a point when I would have bet my life, he was canceling those travel plans. I mean, it's just, there was no way those plans were going to go forward. And literally, it took like an hour of conversation and, you know, sending links and try, like just trying to get into his head around this. So there are people who are, who are not living in the year 2020 on some level with respect to information, but it also cuts both ways because I think the people who are very online can also get siloed into their preferred echo chamber. And, you know, the way the variable of politics is interacting here is pretty interesting because this is, when you look at what was happening in Trumpistan and, and on some level is still happening, you know, among Trump's fans, they've been so confused that they didn't even change their story once the president changed his. They yeah. seem to be denying the gravity of this even when he's forced to declare it's a national emergency. So it's, yeah, I think it cuts both ways. I think people can really be confused online, but sort of in the normal course of events, I felt that the people who were not on Twitter in particular just were not getting up-to-the-minute information. And that's a factor. There's a factor which, which was true, you know, a couple of weeks ago. It's no longer true, which is it really was siloed politically, which is the liberals, you know, were very concerned about the virus. And the fans of Trump were listening to him to say, this is no big deal. We have it licked. Don't worry about it. Right. And, you know, to his, you know, his very limited credit, he changed his story. And, well, and... I, think, I think he probably changed his story. Well, who knows? One major lever in his brain is what happens to the stock market, obviously. So he, he knew he, at a That's certain right. point, he had to message to the market 
this was interesting because this is this is not an irrational concern. I mean, the steel man version of the other side here is the panic is going to do more harm than the virus. What you don't want to do is crash the global economy because that has all kinds of other effects that actually do cost lives, right? People will die because the economy falls apart. If you're going to have a virus that even in the end might kill a million people in the United States, if you can absorb that blow without crashing the U.S. economy, that's much better than crashing it in a panic. And I totally understand that. I mean, no, I, you know, I've, I've never been counseling panic, but the problem we faced at every moment along the way here is that in order to do something that mitigates the problem at all, in order to do anything that flattens the curve, that spares our healthcare system, I mean, even if all of us are destined to get this thing, if most of us can get it once there are effective antiviral treatments, that's a completely different world. The right. only thing we can do to spread this out over time and contain it at all is to practice what everyone knows now is social distancing. But the paradox here is that in order to do the thing that will actually work at every time point, that thing will seem unreasonable at that time point. The time you need to close the schools is when no one you know is sick yet, right? At precisely the moment where everyone's thinking, oh, come on, we, we don't even know anyone who's sick. Why close the schools? And so it's just psychologically, it's almost a perfect exploit of our system. I mean, we just we That's can't right. be strongly right. motivated at a moment when the very action being counseled seems irrational. And, and by all accounts, we acted too late. The United States was too late. If, if we acted a week earlier, two weeks earlier, it, the situation would be much better coming up in the future. And, you know, nobody knows what it's going to be like two weeks from now, but, but the irresponsibility of the government in, in its behavior and, and sometimes ongoing irresponsibility, you know, that New York was very slow to, to, to respond, for instance, at the city level. It's going to have a cost. Yeah. But, but, you know, you're right about, I, I'm, so, so Yale, where I teach, has gone to online teaching and I'm scrambling to get on top of that and I'm doing, you know, social distancing and all that. And it's an inconvenience and it's difficulty, but there are so many people for whom this crisis is, is life devastating. Yeah. Loss of jobs, loss of businesses. You know, in, in Italy, you don't have funerals for, for your, you know, people die and they can't get, they can't have funerals. There are people who are separated from their children, from their families. There's, you know, cancellations of weddings, of critical life events. So I think any you and I are in, in some way very fortunate that we're yeah. insulated from the, the, oh, the yeah. true terrors of this event. But this is, this is going to, this is, is destroying lives. And, and I just wish we responded quicker. Yeah. And, and the concern about panic there was a needle that had to be threaded here, and, and I mean, we still have to thread it. And every day it becomes more important that we do it. But it's not that we need panic, but we did need to be more alarmed than we were earlier. I mean, the analogy I, that comes to mind here is really to wearing a seatbelt. Like, I find that you know, my anxiety around this pandemic is always at the boundary between where I'm either trying to convince someone that they should take it seriously or trying to figure out what I and my people in my family and my immediate circle should actually do practically. 
But once you've figured out what you should do, then there's, there's no need for anxiety anymore. You can dial the anxiety all the way down because it serves no purpose, but it really does serve a purpose when you need to be motivated to figure something out. And so, like, for me, it's like in the time when seatbelts were just being adopted, right, and, and people had to be convinced to wear them and they didn't like them and they wanted to feel, you know, free in the car and they didn't like the feeling of confinement. And I'm sure there were all of these idiotic conversations where, in fact, there was one person in my life about 20 years ago, a very close friend, still is a, one of my best friends, who did not wear a seatbelt, right? Now, this is like in the 90s. Yeah. He was not wearing a seatbelt. He was a, just a real outlier in my life. I could never convince him to wear a seatbelt. There was no argument that would work. And then he flipped his car and got you know, needlessly injured. Perhaps he would have gotten injured anyway, but he, you know, he was not wearing a seatbelt. And he, you can picture what, it, what a car rolling over does to you when you're you know, free to bounce around in it. You know, he recovered from his injuries, which is great, but he, he was injured enough to reflect on the implications of being loose in a car at speed. So now, you know, ever after has worn a seatbelt. So there are some people who actually do need to be shown the horrific pictures of car accidents, right? I mean, to get motivated to wear a seatbelt. But once you're motivated, once you understand the utility, none of us have to feel anxiety when we get behind the wheel of a car to motivate us to clip in our seatbelt. That gesture now is an automaticity. And I think the same can be true of a response to a crisis like this. I mean, once you figure out what you should do, well, then you can just do that thing. And all this ambient anxiety can be dialed down. But it's totally appropriate to feel it when you're just basically uncertain about what you should do. And you, you have mixed messages and, and you can't get you know, your friends and family on the same page. Anyway, that's how I see it. So I mean, I think, you know, anxiety, you know, continuous anxiety is obviously counterproductive. And we have a significant mental health challenge on our hands when you have anxious people living in isolation and um, watching the stock market bounce around and unable to work. Virus aside, this would be a very big deal for society. Yeah, people seeing their life savings drop and drop and drop and drop. Yeah. And of course, things, things are happening very quickly. I'm in, I'm in Toronto now, and the Canadian Prime Minister a few hours ago announced that Canada would basically be closing its doors to anybody who wasn't Canadian, or for a short period, American. And so, you know, the, what governments do, and how they respond, and what the restrictions will be on your behavior is a constant source of anxiety, how long this will last. I mean, in some way, you're right from a sort of, I don't know, the Buddhist perspective that that once a decision has been made, there's no point to being anxious. Yet, nonetheless, you know, it's an anxious time. Yeah, there's another yeah. aspect to this, by the way. You mentioned threading the needle. It, neither one of us is, is a fan of Donald Trump. And initially, what he did was he seemed, you know, relatively indifferent and unconcerned about the crisis. But there's another way I always worried he might go. And it wouldn't surprise me if he goes this way in the future, which is to rampant xenophobia directing hatred against foreigners, against immigrants, and so on. And besides being, you know, morally terrible, this will make the crisis worse. If, if people, for instance, if illegal immigrants, if, if or even, you know, legal immigrants are, are, don't have access to health care, are afraid to, uh, to enter the system, 
the situation will get much worse and not better. Yeah, I guess I don't really see the basis for that because, you know, if anything, Mexico should be trying to keep us out, right? That's I mean, true. I mean, once the scope of this contagion becomes more obvious, it won't seem like this is, you know, coming from Asia or, I mean, it's, now we think it's, from Trump's point of view, it's more coming from Europe, right? So it's really just, it's a human problem. I don't see how he gets, well, I'll tell you what, in the future, an appropriate demand, which could well be spun as xenophobic, but shouldn't be, will be a demand on China to close down these wet markets because yeah. they actually are akin to bioterrorism. It's negligence that is so obscene that it is almost an act of war. I mean, they are spawning these viruses. Anyone who's playing with a bat in one hand and a duck in the other is just a fucking terrorist at this point, whether they know it or not. So we have to clamp down on that. And I got to assume the Chinese government will, for all their authoritarian charm, they will see the wisdom of doing that. And it almost doesn't matter how they do it, right? It's like, Whoever's insisting that they need to play with bats needs to be dealt with in China. <laughs> okay, well, no, no argument there. Okay. Um, but I, I'm not as confident as you that Trump can figure out a way to um, make use of this crisis. I certainly think he can make use of it in some horrible way. In fact, there's, there's some report that he was trying to get a German drug manufacturer to move to the U.S. to produce a vaccine exclusively for the U.S. Even for Trump, that seems so... Car- I, I, I read the same reports. It seems so cartoonishly evil <laughs> Yes, I that only, only we would have the vaccine. It's like supervillain right. evil. And yeah. it just, I, I, I'm going to be skeptical about that. Yeah, but it I mean, wouldn't surprise me if Trump just used this for more build-the-wall rhetoric, even right. though you know, blaming Mexico for this is, is bizarre. But it wouldn't surprise me. Obviously, there's, there's some data on how unlikely you, we are to be able to contain the spread of a virus by stopping travel. But, you know, insofar as we have better information, it seems to me that does become more and more plausible. I think we, you know, internationally, we do need to be agile on that front. And without any imputation of xenophobia, we just have to say, okay, no flights for 10 days. Let's see what the hell's going on in that country of yours. So, I mean, that was the one move he made, which was I believe spun as xenophobic initially when he made it, although some of the spin turned out to be false memes circulated on Twitter. I think there was a fake tweet from Chuck Schumer saying that this is more racism from Trump. But I did support him canceling the flights from China just on the assumption that it might work. Now, it obviously didn't. And the rest of his messaging was so appalling and insane that he did much more damage than one might expect. But no, I, 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 could, I could see in the future Trump exploiting this, but I don't think the travel restrictions to date have been particularly xenophobic. You know, like I just said, Justin Trudeau is doing the same thing for Canada, actually mm-hmm. much stricter than what the United States has. And, you know, nobody sees this as a xenophobic move. Right. It's just designed, it's just designed to reduce spread. And, and so I, I've heard talk that there may be some domestic travel restrictions in the United States. It's a possibility. And it's not right. clear that's a bad idea. No, no. I mean, the painful reality of this is that I mean, this is a massive coordination problem. If we could all just agree to stay home for something like three weeks, we could actually extinguish this thing. I mean, leave aside, I, mean, I guess it's possible that 
people who already have it could be contagious for much longer than we might fear. I mean, I guess that's possible. You know, I don't think we understand the disease enough now to rule that out. But, you know, assuming this acts like many other viruses, we could just all hole up for three weeks and have this burn itself out. And yet we seem absolutely incapable of doing that. And for that reason, who knows when life returns to normal and at what cost. And the terrifying thing could be in two weeks, three weeks, we could be Italy. We could have yeah. our hospitals overrun and um, people could be dying for lack of medical care. So that's, that's the big worry. Yeah. And that's barring some fairly heroic social distancing. I think that it's reasonable to expect that at this point. So, I mean, certainly in parts of the U.S., I mean, in major cities, we've all learned a lot in the last few weeks. I mean, I had no idea that we only had 2.8 hospital beds for every thousand people in this country. And it's actually much lower than other countries. And it's much lower than Italy, for instance. And the fact that our hospitals already function at 65% capacity, it would be great if at tolerable cost, we learned every actionable lesson to learn from this. Just imagine actually becoming, you know, more robust in the face of pandemic as a result of this and realizing that our healthcare system needs to be reformulated. And I mean, there's so many things that are kind of breaking through now, universal basic income, yeah, you know, universal healthcare. It's just... Mitt Romney just suggested sending a check to every American. Yeah, yeah. Which, and it's not, it's not a bad idea. I no, think it's, it's, it's great. much better much more effective and much, much better than some sort of tax fiddling. Because if you send a check to every American, it'll mean more to poor Americans and rich Americans. While if you do a stuff with the payroll tax, it has the opposite effect. Yeah. Except I, I don't see in this case how it truly reboots the economy. Because if we're avoiding a potentially lethal virus and are wise to, and therefore don't want to go to restaurants, just giving people money to go to restaurants is not going to get them to go to restaurants. So the, you know, the restaurant business is going to suffer no matter how big that check is, except for you know, it'll help the people who are yeah. not working at, at their restaurant jobs. And, and who yeah. can't pay their rent. And yeah. So, yeah. so in some way, you, you've answered a question I was going to ask you, which is, it's been going around Twitter, people have been asking each other, so what are the, what are the positive effects of this event, mm -hmm. assuming we make it through? And one answer you gave, which I think is, is the immediate answer, is the right answer, is that it's a dress rehearsal for, for the next one, which could be much more serious. So we could go through some difficult times, but if we learn from it and know how to respond intelligently and appropriately and prepare, then you know when the next bird flu comes, we could be prepared. So that would be a plus side. Can you think yeah. about it? Yeah, well, there are many personally and collectively. Just collectively, this is a wake-up call on so many fronts. I mean, the, the idea that we don't want expertise anymore, right? The idea that we can just wing it with a reality TV show star and his buddies in charge of everything. You have to imagine many people who, for whom the downside there was just an abstraction. Yeah. Many, many people are tired of winning, I would say, at this point. <laughs> and um, just take specific examples like, you know, the anti-vax movement, right? I mean, just, just think of how nice it would be to have a vaccine for coronavirus right now. You know, Anti-vax people are very quiet now. Yeah, I mean, I don't know which has been harmed more, the cruise ship industry or the anti-vax movement. And I don't know which recovers first, but that argument is over, right? And 
you know, it should be felt to be over, and the indecency of it when it resurfaces should carry more opprobrium than it, than it has in the past. But also just understanding that there are problems we have that are global in scale for which there really is only a global solution. We can't be America first for global problems, and that lesson has to become indelible. The flip side of this epiphany, however, is that given how hard we've found it to be to convince ourselves that this pandemic that is just crashing down on us is worth paying attention to, I don't know how we get our heads straight around climate change. Just imagine if this were climate change, right? And you had reports out of Italy that climate change has arrived and the hospitals are full and they're having to triage patients and deciding whether a 45-year-old with two kids should live over a 55-year-old with three kids. And that's all due to climate change. And, you know, we, we can track its progress across the Atlantic and it's coming to New York and we still can't decide whether to, <laughs> to pay attention to it. That's the situation we're in right now. And yet, you know, climate change is this multi-year, multi-decade abstraction. If our psychologies are unprepared to deal with this, as they seem to be, at least in part, they are grossly unprepared for climate change. Yeah. Because, you know, here we have to be able to think forward to two weeks and see, here's what we'll be in two weeks if we don't act. You know, for climate change, it means 20 years, 10 years, 20 years. And it's, it's difficult. It's a difficult coordination problem. There, there's this line that I think Ronald Reagan was actually the first to say, but it's sort of a standard social psychology thing, which is what will bring the world together is, you know, an alien invasion. Yeah. yeah. Aliens attack, we'd all come together, we'd have a common enemy. And, you know, that might be right. There, there's some, you know, social psychology work suggesting a common enemy really does bring people together. But I don't think the virus cuts it. It doesn't seem to be having that effect and climate change doesn't cut it either. I think the common enemy actually really has to be an enemy, something, an, an intelligent, malevolent creature we could fight against. The, these, these causal properties of biology and physics don't seem to inspire us in the same way. Yeah, the time course is really hard to get your mind around. When you think about a slower moving problem than this and our inability to be motivated by it, that's pretty sobering. That's a nice way to put it. It's too slow moving. Yeah. It's, it's, it's too slow moving. And again, I think, put it this way, I think the people, whoever coined the term the war on cancer was kind of a genius. Mm. Wars motivate us. Wars excite us. Wars, wars drive us. And, and that's a, a useful metaphor. Now, it's not as simple as say, let's have the war on you know, COVID-19. But right. if we could think more that way, We'd probably, be, yeah. we'd probably respond better. Whatever the remedy is here, it, it, it's going to be recognizing once and for all how the free market is not optimizing for responsiveness to certain enormous problems, right? And yeah. the fact that we, we're noticing that our supply of mission-critical things is running low already, right? I mean, just the you know, ventilators. We're not going to have enough ventilators, right? And we get all of our drugs from China, right? I mean, just imagine somebody was, I mean, we we don't happen to be at war with China at the moment, but someone drew the analogy to, you know, just imagine if we outsource the production of all of our 
bullets, you know, all of our ammunition to China, right? And then we get into a war with China and we expect mm-hmm. them to supply us with rounds for our guns. I mean, it's just ridiculous that we don't have the infrastructure to produce specific life-saving things that we know we're going to need. So we, we have to figure that out. And the idea that we don't want big government meddling in our lives at these points is just insane. I mean, so that the libertarian fan fiction yeah. that everyone has been reading in Silicon Valley for the last 30 years, right? You know, all the devotees of Ayn Rand have to ream this out of their heads. You need a government big enough to handle problems like this. And pandemics turn us all into socialists. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and I've actually seen, I've seen some people on Twitter who are pretty libertarian and everything in there. <laughs> this is, this is, uh, this has been a... If you'd like to continue listening to this podcast, you'll need to subscribe at samharris.org. There you'll find our private RSS feed to add to your favorite podcatcher, along with other subscriber-only content, including bonus episodes and AMAs and the conversations I've been having on the Waking Up app. As always, I never want money to be the reason why someone can't get access to the podcast. So if you can't afford a subscription, there's an option at samharris.org to request a free account, and we grant 100% of those requests, no questions asked. The Making Sense podcast is ad-free and relies entirely on listener support. And you can subscribe now at samharris.org.